0: Hi you're listening to Science Soapbox, a podcast at the intersection of science, policy, and advocacy. I'm Devin Collins, here with Avital Percher. Hey, everybody. Stepping on today's soapbox is Congressperson Joe Kennedy. He is the representative of Massachusetts' 4th Congressional District, and he's a member of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, which places him pretty squarely in the interests of science, technology, engineering, and math. Exactly.
1: Our interest in talking with Congressperson Kennedy actually originated from his vested interest in STEM education which is the a primary platform point on his page and it prompted us to reach out to him and get to chat and not only did we get to chat about his interest in STEM education and his insights on how it should be playing a role in our economy, but we also had a great opportunity and timely one to talk about the upcoming taxation on graduate students.
0: Yeah. So uh, as of the interview recording, the House had not yet voted on the current tax bill. Mm-hmm. And as of this intro, <laughs> the, the vote has taken place, but the Senate has yet to vote. So we're
1: going to jump right in. It's a rather short one, but well, it's still really great. And tune in next time. We'll be coming up within a few weeks with another interview. This time, Mariam will be joining us for the intro. So we'll have the team
0: back together for that. Enjoy. So first of all, Congressman Kennedy, thank you so much for talking with us today. We were looking a little bit through your background, and we found it really interesting that you did your uh, bachelor's in science management and engineering, and we thought that would be might be a great place to start, since <laughs> one of the conceits of the podcast is STEM education mm-hmm. and the integration of science into lots of different kinds of thinking. So, uh, if you don't mind, can you just tell us a little bit about what that degree was and how it how it shaped your path? Oh my God!
2: Um, so yeah, I was a um, management science and engineering uh, degree um, from Stanford, and I. Um, It basically started off to see if I could do it. I liked math because I love the feeling of getting the right answer. I stopped liking math when I couldn't get the right answer anymore, (laughs) Um, which um, didn't take all that long. But it was an extraordinarily useful opportunity for me to try to get through one and do something that was harder and more challenging than I think some of the other areas of study might have been. And two, to be able to get through the rigor and discipline of an engineering program and an engineering core. The most powerful course I took was actually computer science. And the idea that, so for computer science, that you'd be given this assignment that was extraordinarily complex. Um, but the idea of trying to say, OK, if you needed to make, at one point we had to make a, basically a, a, an elementary version of Excel, Microsoft Excel. So spreadsheets, storing databases, arrays, and then have the, the cells interact with each other, right? And so if you try to think of, okay, well, how would you do that, That's that gets hard. Um, but then when you try to have to think, okay, well, what are the basics of what you want that program, how do you want that program to work? Okay, well, you obviously have a, a graphics interface, which they actually provided us, but then... The next was, okay, you want to be able to store data in certain ways. You want to be able to have essentially a grid. You want those cells to be able to interact if chosen and selected by various functions. You need to make sure they you put in the, the ways that they could relate to one another and how you get outputs that are necessary. As you start thinking about the various basics there, each one of those would say, okay, well... That could be one module, that would be the next one, that would be the next one. Okay, so when you're talking about functions, what do you want them to do? Well, you want to add, subtract, multiply, divide, and do a Mm -hmm. couple of other ones. Okay, well, how are you going to do that? And you take this really complex end product, which you think you kind of know what that looks like, but it forces you to break it down into small little bite sized steps. And really try to think it through and then build it back up again and then test it. And the extraordinary frustration that you would run into when the darn program wouldn't compile um, that one letter that's off. And I'd scream at the computer and somebody would say, you know, it's actually not the computer, it's you, uh, which was really <laughs> helpful. Um, but that manner of thinking of taking a complex problem and breaking it down to its smallest, simplest component and building it back up, that's actually how you're supposed to craft legislation, right? Mm. if you're trying to think of you know, a tax bill, per se, well, what, what's the problem you're trying to solve? Yeah. What's the, if you're trying to think of the incentive structures around the world's most powerful economy, what kind of behavior do you want to incentivize? What kind of economy do you want to incentivize? What's that actually look like? Okay, well, you're going to have something for personal taxes and corporate taxes. Okay. Those are, are two different pieces. For corporate taxes, how do you want to think about it? Well, there's different segments of different definitions of corporations and society. Okay, well, do we want to merge some of those together? Do you want to keep them apart? Do you want to look at the ways, the, the locations that corporations earn income, whether they're the United States or otherwise? Should we tax those differently? Why or why not? And... As you build those down and then build it back up again, understanding if you do one thing over you know, in one part, that's going to influence something in someplace else. So how do you deal with those synergies? That is actually how we should have been writing this tax bill, which is not what happened. Yeah. But it is the idea of how do you break something that is really complex down to its most bite-sized piece and then build it back up to see the level of complexity and then iron those out. That was really useful for me to have. And the recognition that essentially, you know, these are studies of systems, right? Yeah. And that engineering one is a study of probability. There's a probability for everything. You know, there's a, sometimes those probabilities are really small, sometimes they're really big. But but you're dealing with math and numbers. And so one, getting uh, comfortable with those numbers. But then two, trying to build in redundancies where you sit there and say, hey, there's a probability of failure of X. Well, is that failure going to be minor or is it going to be catastrophic? Is that going to be something where if it's a really big deal, how do you build in a redundancy to make sure to to minimize the chance that that failure happens and to also then nest it with something else to, right. to make sure it's not as catastrophic as it might otherwise yeah. be? And, you know, it's a pretty good way to think of either ways to avoid taxes or ways you might want to set up various defense initiatives, right? And so all of that has been, I think, really helpful to me in a way that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of coming into this job.
0: Yeah,
1: that's a great lead-in into the tax bill. I I would be (laughs) remiss to just not utilize that opportunity. One of the things that I it seems apparent is when we or when we've been listening uh, through the public's lens about what's going on with the tax bill is this issue of the different groups that it affects. You were talking about how you want to break something down and uh, as to citizens who are watching how our taxes as graduate students, surprisingly enough, is going to go out. One thing that has tr- stood out to me is this issue of that breakdown seems skewed, and it's in the everyone's talking about this in the media. But the most notable point for me is actually that issue for the graduate students, where we, we're unclear yet to what extent, but we are where we'll be seeing a tax increase as well. And what are your thoughts about how to engage and address that issue in particular? Like, who do you who do you go to when you say like here is a clear problem in this tax bill? So, it's probably not going to come as a surprise
2: to either of you or to your listeners that I'm not a big fan of this tax bill because it doesn't answer the question that we should be asking uh, about taxes, which is what are the incentives that we want behind a tax structure for the most powerful economy in the world, and how does that then reflect on the values that we hold as a nation and the people that we call our citizens and so look it becomes odd right to take one little segment of this out to see republicans treat graduate students now the way they do one most graduate students i know i know aren't living off a whole ton of money they're graduate students (laughs) they're they're struggling to make ends meet and you're in the midst of course of studies right some get tuition breaks from schools some get additional help from employers but to target that as a source of revenue basically is saying to some extent, we don't value that academic pursuit. We don't value that pursuit of knowledge. We don't value the research or the insights that you're going to come up with or the investment that you're making in yourself as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. And it does that to, to raise a couple billion dollars, which people look at that and say, well, that's a fair amount of money. And on the grand scheme of things, it is. Aside from the fact that you're talking about trillions and trillions of dollars over the 10-year horizon of what this tax bill looks like. And so it's not even a rounding error. And so what I think people have to look at in this is not kind of the question of, hey, this raises, you know, this one thing here or one thing there raises a couple billion dollars. But you're taxing now the acquisition of knowledge and many graduate and students teach as well. So the dissemination of that knowledge as well mm-hmm. to a younger generation of traditionally college students in order to do what? And the answer so far, and granted these these tax bills are still under development, but the answer so far is to pay down a corporate tax rate and make that permanent and to give individuals, some individuals, predominantly wealthy individuals, a tax break that ends up being temporary. And that just seems to me to be an extraordinarily skewed vision of what powers our country. I'm in this job, you are fortunate to, to be able to travel around the world. I think it's an essential part of this job. And one of the crown jewels that we have here that most nations don't is a university system that actually pushes people to think critically and to be imaginative and creative and to solve problems. And... To see our Republican colleagues somehow put a tax on the acquisition of knowledge seems really misguided. And particularly when you say, okay, we're going to do that to raise some money to essentially pay down an estate tax for extremely wealthy estates. Well, why?
0: Mm -hmm. To what end? Yeah, one of the things I think that we on the show kind of return to is how science and dissemination of knowledge is such a major economic engine. and I guess this isn't so much a question. It's just like I totally agree with you. It, it, it's it's such a tragedy that we would for such a short-term game, for just some of us, cripple ourselves in that in that way. It's not look. But, I think. <laughs> Obviously, you know,
2: there hasn't been a tax rewrite for roughly 30 years. Economies have changed. Societies have changed. We need to update our tax code. And of that, there's actually very little disagreement here. Yeah. The question isn't, should we update it? The question is, is well, given that times have changed and, and our society has changed and the demands on econo- the economic demands on families and our economic realities have changed, there's far more two household earners in today's society than there were 30 years ago. Yeah. That's one, because... More and more knowledge has been disseminated and there's more and more folks that have that skill, additional marketable skills that are entering into the workforce, which is great. The challenge on that, too, is that more and more families have to have two people to make <laughs> yeah. money to, to make ends meet. Yeah. And that's an additional pressure that we're seeing on families. Right. It's yeah. you're seeing a huge spike in the cost of childcare. You're seeing a huge and the demands then that families have on finding affordable child care. Right. That's this the secondary and tertiary impacts here. I think what is still stunning about it is to say, why would you put the burden on graduate students when most of them are not going to have exactly a, a whole lot of extra disposable income to pay at that stage in their careers? Some of those graduate students are going to hopefully with those degrees go off. Some will become teachers. Some will become professors. Some will go into industry. Some of them might make a whole lot of money. Tax someone they can afford to make the money once they have the money, right? Yeah. And what this essentially does is say, no, we'll tax you when you don't. But after you have it, we'll let you go free. Mm-hmm. Why would you do that?
1: Yeah. It doesn't make it's a good. lot of sense. So bringing that into another topic we wanted to address, which is STEM education. We've been reading about your passions and what drives your interests here in Congress. And through the lens of STEM education, We could talk about, in a way, about how that would be interacting and influencing each other, but I'd like actually to veer it more on something else, which is more along the lines of what is your primary concern at the moment with STEM education? When you wake up in the morning and you're thinking other than, Getting out to work on time. <laughs> when I wake up in the morning I'm wondering how far away the cup of coffee is. That's is fair. essentially yeah. the, the Same first here. question.
2: <laughs> oh. So I think a couple of things, right? One, STEM and STEAM obviously I, I think the arts are a critically important aspect to this too for the creativity and the, the ingenuity that's necessary. I mean engineering and STEM education, uh, those are tools that we Need to flush out, uh, and we need to build up a process societal capacities to solve a problem. You also need to have the creativity to figure out what that solution looks like, right? And then yeah. the engineering skills to be able to to, to solve it, the mathematical skills to be able to solve it. So I do view those two two pieces as integrally related. A couple of, I think, kind of critical issues here that we face when when looking at education at large, and, and particularly STEM and STEAM. One is that we have extraordinary inefficiencies in our labor market at the moment. There's about 6 million unfulfilled jobs in the United States as we speak. Yet we hear an awful lot about the fact that there's a lot of people out there that are still struggling to make ends meet, and a lot of folks that dropped out of the workforce aren't looking for work. Why? Because there's a skills mismatch. The, the 6 million jobs require skills that a lot of those folks that are underemployed or unemployed don't have Mm -hmm. technical skills are a huge component of that and so I look at this as trying to say as you're trying to educate a workforce for today and a workforce for tomorrow having a base level of competency in uh, mathematics engineering science and technology is going to be ever more critical because the world's going to keep getting more technical and more competitive and uh, more complicated and if you don't have that skill set ingrained in you when you're coming out of high school or college. It's going to be an awful lot harder to acquire it when you're 40, 50, 55 years old. And we as a society need to keep you in the workforce as long as we possibly can because you continue to be an economic engine for our society and paying into programs like Medicare and Social Security rather than taking early retirement where you end up drawing on some of those benefits that you've earned. But it is critically important that we're ensuring that now for for that generation of workers that has been displaced, that we are able to provide pathways for them to acquire those skills should they want to. Two, for a next generation coming out of school, that they have those basic set of capabilities to be able to stay competitive in the workforce for the next 40 or 50 years. And then three... I trying to make sure that those opportunities are, in fact, open to everybody. As you know, there's extraordinary inequities around access to STEM education. So for communities that are more well-off, you have an awful lot of programs out there that are really focused on this. But, you know, there was a couple of years ago, I think there were three states where not a single woman took the computer science exam, uh, computer science AP exam, right? That's stunning. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you look at the population in STEM programs, there's huge discre- discrepancies in the, the number of, uh, mm-hmm. of women and girls in them, mm-hmm. huge discrepancies with minority students and minority population, and huge discrepancies when it comes to, and disparities when it comes to uh, lower income populations. And that's an equity issue, but that looking at the fact that STEM jobs are increasing at about twice as fast as non-STEM jobs are yeah. in their number, that becomes an economic issue and an e- economic justice issue because we need to make sure that Everybody gets access to be able to play in those fields and, and to contribute back, because there's an awful lot of talent and potential that we end up leaving on the table as a society if you're not tapping into the, the talent that all, every single one of those students has and
0: might be able to bring back to our country. So one of the wrap-up questions we always like to ask our guests is, so you, you clearly have been interfacing with science for, a lot of your career, your entire career, and uh, one thing we like to ask people is, I guess if you, in your formative years, <laughs> what is a scientific memory that stuck with you and that you kind of carry and that you can you know, draw upon today?
2: I was probably one of those kids that, like many, was exposed to science um, at an early age but wasn't necessarily said, hey, let, we're going to sit down and do a science project, right? I, I remember <laughs> mixing baking soda and, and, and vinegar and watching volcanoes explode, right? Yeah, I thought I was a blast. A <laughs> I remember I spent a lot of time as a kid uh, going fishing with my with my dad and with my family. And the science of the ocean, at one point in my life, I wanted to be a marine biologist, right? But the science of the ocean, the waves, it always mystified me that... You know, seventy-five percent of the world was covered in water, and we have no idea what's beneath beneath the surface of the yeah. seas. <laughs> You're out trying to catch a darn fish, and um, the wind picks up, and the waves start coming, and the you know rain starts squalling. And the science behind what changes the weather and what changes it so quickly, and migratory patterns of of fish and whales, and the vivacity and and, and vibrancy of of what keeps an ocean alive. Right, the, just things that I was exposed to that just every now and again you sit there and go, "Huh, that's interesting," and I I wonder <laughs> how that works, or I wonder how the heck I found myself here. It, it was just always interesting. And again, you know, the math didn't necessarily come supernaturally to me, but I I did love the idea of being able to solve the problem and actually getting the right answer. And yeah. I thought that if there's, as you dive into that, the explanatory power of numbers and the ways that we can use them to solve problems that we don't even know can be solved at the moment is pretty stunning. So if you're interested in discovery, if you're intellectually curious, if you want to know how you're going to find ways to, to solve problems,
0: math is going to run through it some way or the
2: other. And so being around really smart people that are dedicated to that is one of the joys of this job. And I think something that we need to continue to incentivize.
0: I think that's really interesting and such a really great note to end on because, uh, again, one of, the, one of the refrains that we always come back to is how optimistic STEM and STEAM are in that, it kind of presupposes that there is an answer or there is a solution that will at least be workable. And I think that fits so well into what you do here in in, in DC that, you know, people are working at problems because they think that there are solutions. We might not always agree on what those solutions are, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's just so lovely, and, and I think it means a lot to uh, Avital and myself as scientists that you are uh, approaching it, these these grand problems and, and in a way that is b- both familiar to us, but also that is intrinsically useful. And hopefully has some base in fact and reality. Yeah. <laughs> hopefully. That sounds like yeah. a great ending. Yeah. Thank you so
2: much.
1: Thanks, guys. that's all for this interview a special thank you to congressman kennedy for taking the time to talk with us this week and also to his staff for coordinating with us this meeting as well if you want to follow us we are on social media on twitter and facebook and you can listen to more interviews on our soundcloud page thank you to visager for the music you're listening to now and until next time
0: thanks for listening